Make sure you get a handout there in the middle. Well, we are, uh, we are at Pentecostal volume tonight. So this is exciting for a Baptist preacher, for sure. We are, uh, we're in part 26 of Infinitely Better, part 26 of Infinitely Better. We've spent uh, over seven months uh, talking about the book of Hebrews. And, uh, of course, the title of our study in the book of Hebrews is Infinitely Better to show, uh, as the uh, writer of Hebrews has done, uh, that the Old Testament uh, covenant of the sacrificial system and how Jesus came and he replaced that and he made it better. And so there's been uh, some uh, instruction through the book of Hebrews. There's been some encouragement through the book of Hebrews. But there's also been some warnings in the book of Hebrews. And I know a few weeks ago when we were in chapter 6, Pastor Tony uh, preached in Hebrews chapter 6. And he, and he talked about the verses in verses 4 through 6. And uh, sometimes th- those can be difficult verses for you to read and certainly understand. And so tonight I guess you would say this is part 2 of uh, that, that same thought. And so this is the warning again that we get to in Hebrews chapter 10. Now, last week when Pastor Tony preached, it was a very popular verse in Hebrews 10, 25, where the latter part says, don't forsake the assembling together of others. And many people are familiar with that verse. And so the writer of Hebrews was talking about the community of them being together and encouraging each other. And then he pauses, and in verse 26, he gives a very stern Warning. Now, I want, you to, um, I want you to pay attention tonight. I know uh, I said this Wednesday night. I said, I know you're the Wednesday night crowd. So I know tonight that you're the Sunday night crowd. And I know what that means. Uh, and I know, you know, the implications of that. But uh, this is God's Word. And so there's instruction for us in this as we talk about this warning. You see, when we talk about the warning here, he's already given a few warnings throughout the book of Hebrews. One of the warnings that he gave was the warning of drifting. That it's very easy in our walk with God, especially as he's introducing and cementing these things into the hearer's ears here about the new covenant with Jesus and that he replaced the old sacrificial system and that Jesus is the new high priest. And and so all the things that they're hearing now is certainly opposite of what they were accustomed to in their culture growing up. And so he warned them, listen, don't begin to drift. Because he understood, it's just like you and I today, that they lived in a culture where everybody was not following Jesus. And they lived in a culture where it was possible that every influence that they had outside of the local church was pushing them away from the belief system in which the writer of Hebrews is trying to instill here. And so if you look at our world today and you look at everything that happens outside of these four walls theologically, our culture is at war with God. And our culture is attempting to define the reality of, uh, and and again, it's a vain attempt, but their attempt is to define the reality of who they want God to be and specifically what they want sin to be, right? And so when we look at the culture today and we see their definition of what they think sin is, it's a far cry from what the Word of God says that sin is. And so if you haven't picked up on it already tonight, we're going to talk about the warning of sin. You see, what sin does is it entices us and it begins to draw us away. And in our heart, 
The Bible says in, in James that, you know, the temptation itself is not the sin, but it's when we begin to give in to that and we begin to act on that desire, then we begin to drift and we stray away from the path in which God intends for us. And so as the writer is warning here, he, he, again, he's been building his case, and he says, be very careful not to drift. Casting crowns writes a song. It's called A Slow Fade. It's years ago. And it talks about how it's when black and white turn to gray, right? And how we begin to fade away. And one small thing begins to lead us astray or, or get us off path or get us off kilter. And all of a sudden, we're not following the God of the Bible. We're following the God that we've created. And so he said, listen, be very careful not to drift. And then he took it a step further and he says uh, the second danger that he gave was the danger of doubting. That sometimes we create or we began to conjure up some belief systems in our own heart and we began to follow those things. And things may happen in our life that we don't understand. And what, will, what our human response to that is, is that we will begin to doubt our belief system. Right? That happens all the time, that, that people have uh, specifically bad things that happen in their life, and they'll begin to question life, and they'll begin to question God, and they'll begin to doubt the things that they once believed, right? And so you really, you get to a point in your life when those things happen to where you have to decide whether you are following tradition, the things that you've always been taught, or are you following Jesus? Because see, if you're following Jesus, He is infinitely better, and He is sufficient. Right, And so with Jesus, you'll be able to make it through whatever it is that you may encounter. Now, if it's tradition or if it's the way that you've always done things before or if it's someone else's faith that you're trying to tailwind off of, well, then you're probably not going to make it. And so he gave the danger, uh, the danger of doubting, that it's possible that you, begin, you can begin to stray through doubting. So he's introduced these concepts and these warnings, and along the way he's encouraged them. And then we get to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 26, and this is what he says. He says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That if we just continue to deliberately sin, that we continue to live in our own desires in the flesh, he says there remains no sacrifice, this is what the Bible says, there is no sacrifice for sins. Now what we've done is we've attempted to define sin. And we've said, well, it's not, you know, we categorize it. And we say, well, it's not as bad as that sin or it's not as bad as this sin. And we begin to, we've, we feel good about the things in which we have done in error against God, which Makes no sense whatsoever. But we're all guilty of doing that. That we, we categorize. If you have someone who has murdered someone, well, we elevate them to a higher position of sin, if you will, than someone who told a lie. And see, therein lies the problem in our world today is that we've, de we've decided that we want to define what sin is. You see, he says, but a fearful expectation in verse 27 is what they'll receive and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. He says, listen, and we'll get to it in a minute. But if you break the Old Testament law, don't you know this is a, these, are, these are Jews primarily. They know what he's talking about here. And he said, don't you know that if you break the law of Moses, that if two or three people agree that you did it, you will die by stoning? How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. 
It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He says, now, now this is a hard word. The, you know, he just said in, in 1025, he's encouraging them, and he says in verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so there's this, oh, I feel good about myself. And then he says, well, now, if we go on deliberately sinning, you see, what's happened in our world today is black and white have turned to gray. And, and what our world has done in our, our society in an attempt to make ourselves feel better, what we've done is we've grayed the lines of sin. And we've tried to redefine what we think sin is and what we think sin is not. Now, the Bible's very clear on that. We, we were in D group earlier today, and uh, we were talking about all the commands that God gave Noah. It's interesting that Noah said very little, but he did quite a bit. God told Noah, here's all the things that I want you to do, Noah. Here's all the things that I want you to do. And then the Bible says, and Noah did it. That's a good epitaph, right? God told Matt what to do, and Matt did it. And so instead of doing that, though, what we've done is we've said, well, now, wait a minute. Let me decide whether or not that's sin or not, right? I mean, we've had, uh, you know, I don't want to get into the political side of it, but all these politicians try to define what is and is not acceptable. And our culture says, well, no, you know, you can't be dogmatic about that position or you can't be dogmatic about this position, where in reality, what we're uh, really attempting to do, culture is trying to say, well, this is sin and this is not sin. We don't need a new definition of sin. We already have one. You see, we read verses like 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 9 and 10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9, this is what the Bible says. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's very clear. Right? And in Genesis chapter 5, you read a very similar list in verses 19 through 21. And Revelations 21.8 goes so far as to say that liars will not inherit the kingdom of God. Liars. Really? Right? I mean, we would all sit in here and say, now, wait a minute, time out. There's no way that liars go to hell. I've lied. Right? This is what the Bible says, very, very clear, that sexual immorality, idolatry, drunkenness will not inherit the kingdom of God. Liars will be cast into the lake of fire. What in the world? How is that possible? You see, according to the Bible, these people will spend an eternity apart from God in eternal torment and suffering. Separate, that's what death is, separation from God. The wages of sin is what? Death, separation from God. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. And so we see this separation from God in eternal torment and suffering. This is what Spurgeon said. He says, think lightly of hell and you will think lightly of the cross. You see, that's not something we talk about anymore. It's hell. Jesus spent more time talking about that than almost anything else, but yet we don't talk about it at all. Because in our minds, well, if we don't talk about it, maybe it doesn't exist. I mean, our culture has attempted to erase hell. There's actually a book called Erasing Hell. And it talks about how the culture's tried to erase hell. 
That we don't want to talk about that. That doesn't fit the narrative of today, right? That you, there are wrong things that you can do and there is a just God who will cause you to answer for those things. But that doesn't fit the narrative. That's not what the culture wants us to believe today. Jonathan Edwards was helping a church to uh, get a pastor. And uh, the story goes that they told Jonathan Edwards, they said, now look, this guy is coming, but he doesn't believe in hell. And this is what Jonathan Edwards said about the pastor who doesn't believe in hell. And it doesn't have to be a pastor. You can just say it was a person because it's the same effect. This is what Jonathan Edwards said. He says, if he is right that there is no hell, we don't need him. And if he's wrong, then we don't want him. Right? And so when our culture says that there is no hell, well, that's not a culture that we ought to be a part of. That's not a culture that we ought to follow if we believe what the Bible says. Because, see, if we really believe what the Bible says, then we'd probably live our lives a lot differently. Right? I mean, think about it. If you knew that tomorrow that the world was going to end, that at any second Jesus could come back, and that you knew people that were lost, you would do something different tomorrow than you did today. You would. We all would, right? But for some reason, we've been lulled to sleep to believe that, no, there is extra time. No, I've got a couple extra days. You'd burn through your vacation days if you knew tomorrow was the end of the world. You would. would. We would all live differently. So we can't come in here and say that, yes, we believe absolutely everything the Bible says if we're not actually going to live that. And so Jonathan Edwards says, you know what? If he's right and there is no hell, we don't need him. And if he's wrong, we don't want him. We don't need people to tell us what we want to hear. We need people to tell us what we need to hear, right? And so this is what the Bible says. The Bible says that if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Now, come on. Do do drunks really, they really don't go to heaven? I mean, that's what the Bible says. Liars, though? Maybe not liars. Everybody lies. You see, the problem with that is that holiness is no longer an attribute that Christians are known for, but yet it is a a word that we reserve for olden times. I I mean, when's the last time you characterized someone that you knew as holy? That's someone who lives a life of holiness. Can you think of the last time you said that? The last time you heard that? You know, a few weeks ago, if you were here on Wednesday night, Pastor Tony uh, said there were seven things that he was praying for our church in 2019, and one of them was a life of holiness. A few weeks ago, I preached on Stephen, and I preached on Stephen's life was uh, characterized by a life of holiness. And so this, this is a theme that God keeps bringing back up for us here. That God's desire is for us to be holy, and, and holiness is a separation from sin. But what our culture does is that we say, okay, here's where we think the line of sin is. How close can we get to that line and still be okay? As a matter of fact, no joke, there was a church one time that I came by. It was in Gulf Shores, Alabama. And the question was, how close can we get to sin and still be saved? That was written on their marquee board in front of the church. Why is that? Because that's the answer that everybody wants to know. How much can I get away with? What can I do and still be okay? When, whereas what holiness says is here's the standard of God, all right, and here's sin. And holiness says I want to hold fast as close as possible to the holiness of God. And I want to be as far away from sin as I possibly can be. A few years ago, 
uh, I had a, uh, I was invited to a meeting in uh, Boston, Massachusetts. I've never been before. And it was when the big Ebola scare happened, and the, a couple of the doctors came over from Africa and had Ebola, and so it began to spread a little bit. And uh, so I was excited about going to Boston. I'd never been. I was going to go see the Green Monster, you know, the baseball Red Sox. And, uh, and I was, I was going to check out the city, and so I was going to go. And uh, so I had my reservations and everything. And, and then the Ebola thing happened. And uh, lo and behold, there was one in Boston. There was, a, there was a person infected in, in Boston, and so I thought, hmm. So I Googled the address of where they said that the uh, person that was infected with Ebola was at, and, well, it was two miles from my hotel. And so I thought to myself, I'm not going to Boston. I know it's two miles, but it's a lot closer than 2,000 miles, right? And so I said, I'm not going. And so I called up and said, listen, Matt won't be at that meeting. Why is that? Because I wanted to be as far away from that as I possibly could. I knew where it was at, and so I said, I want to distance myself as much as possible. That's what holiness is. It's saying, God, I know what your standard is, and I want to cling to that. I want to do my very best to be who you want me to be, and I'm going to stray as far away as possible from sin as I can. But the world doesn't think that way. The world thinks, well, if we just rewrite the standards, we can continue in sin, and God will somehow be okay with that and somehow grant forgiveness at the end. That's what the world says, really. That's what people believe. Their actions indicate that. Because after all, isn't God a God of mercy and forgiveness? Or I mean, God, He's a merciful God. He's a God of forgiveness. He has to forgive me. You see, for clarity tonight, mercy is not getting what you do deserve. That's what mercy is. So according to the Bible, the wages of sin is death, that we all deserve that. We all deserve to be separated from God. That is because of our sinfulness that did that. And grace for us is getting what we don't deserve. And that even though we deserve death, God in his mercy granted us an opportunity to have a relationship with him. And through grace, he gave us what we don't deserve. That's why the Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And so it's absolutely nothing on you or my own that we have ever done that warrants us an opportunity to be saved. There's nothing that I can do that God will look down and say, oh, because you did that, I have to give you salvation. But out of his grace, giving me what I don't deserve, he certainly did that. And so through Jesus, every person has the availability of the forgiveness of sins. Two weeks ago on a Sunday night, I made the comment that salvation is available for everyone. Anyone who wants to be saved can be saved. For God so loved the world, John 3, 16. God's willing that none should perish, but all that should repent, 2 Peter 3, 9. God's willing that everyone will be saved, but we know everyone won't be, right? If that were true, that everyone would be saved, there wouldn't be a hell. What would be the need? And so God gives us mercy. He gives us this availability through Jesus to be saved, to be forgiven of our sins. And through Jesus, every person has the opportunity to live a life, not a life of sin, mind you, but a life of holiness. Jesus didn't die on the cross for you to continue in your sin. That is not why Jesus died on the cross. 
Jesus didn't die on the cross for you to be like everyone else. Israel, his, his chosen people, weren't like everyone else. They were set apart, and God saved you to set you apart, to sanctify you. That's what sanctification means, is to be set apart, to be different. The Bible says in 2 Peter that we're pilgrims, that we're sojourners, that we're not supposed to be like everybody else. So why in the world does the church look so much like the world today? When God said, look, I saved you not to live a life of sin, but a life of holiness. I think part of it has to do with the way that we see sin. You see, sin is a repugnant stain on the fabric of humanity. And we can't be okay with the deliberate continuation of sin in our lives. We cannot He's talking about this continuing to sin if we go on deliberately sinning. He's talking about continual living in that sin. We go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. We go to Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 through 21. We look at Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8, and we see a list of people where the Bible says, These people will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know, for instance, Revelation 21 8 says, liars will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we ask ourselves the question, I have lied before, and so does that mean that I can't go to heaven? That'd be the logical question, right? But the answer to that is, no, that's not what that means. The Bible says that liars, people are known for their lies. The Bible says that idolaters, people that are mired in idolatry, the people that are sexually immoral, the people that are known for their sexual immorality, it is a continual, deliberate entrance and continuation with that sin. Those are the people that the Bible is talking about. And so he says here that, that this continuation is deliberate in their life. And so what he's doing is he's being very specific here. He's emphasizing a very specific point, and that is do not remain in sin. Do not remain in sin. That we can't be okay with sin in our lives. And every one of us has it. Again, I know we're the Sunday night crowd, so don't fall back on me and say, well, listen, I know you're talking about apostasy or defecting from the faith, but it is a slippery slope to get there. There is drifting, and there is doubting, and then we get to chapter 10, and there is despising the Word of God to where we turn away, and we begin to establish our own rules and our own ways, and every single person has attempted at some point or another to do that, and it's called tradition. That we say, well, here's the way that I've always done it before, or here's the way that I expect it, or I think it should be. But the writer is saying, look, don't categorize sin as what you think is not acceptable or what is acceptable, but let sin be what it is. It's sin. The writer is not suggesting here that the sacrifice of Jesus would somehow run out. He says there is no, there would be no longer a sacrifice for sins. He's not saying that Jesus' sacrifice was only good for so long, but that intentionally rebelling against the God of heaven will disqualify one for heaven, for salvation, for a relationship with God. That if you intentionally sin, if you intentionally rebel against God, that you are turning your face, you're turning your heart from the God of heaven. And so what the author is referencing here is those who were in willful sin. Intentional, deliberate continuation of sin. The tense of the verb that he uses here 
in verse 26, should, it, the, the verse reads like, if we, for if we willfully go on sinning, if we continue in that sin. You see, this exhortation is not dealing with one particular act of sin, as I mentioned, but it is an attitude that leads to repeated disobedience. I can't get the slide to turn to the next one. You may have to help me out a little bit. It's an exhortation not of one particular sin, but with an attitude that leads. We're one, one back. One more. There we are. But an attitude that leads to repeated disobedience. It's that we continue, we know the right thing. Listen, he says at the very beginning of the verse, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, he's saying, look, you know what you ought to do. Again, I know our heart is going to lead us to say, well, you know, he's talking about those sinners out there, those people who don't go to church. He is not talking about that. He is talking to people that are in the church house, and I'm going to give you the reasons for that in just a second. But this is church people that he's talking to. These are people like you and me who show up at church and who are part of the things that are happening in church. And, and, and that's what Pastor Tony, when he talked about in Hebrews chapter 6, is that just because we're associated with the things of God and we're around the people that are involved in the things of God doesn't make us saved. You can be around the activity of God all you want. Look at Judas. He saw everything that Jesus did. He was trusted to keep the money. And yeah, the Bible says that it was better that he wasn't even born. So this is not an association with the things of God. This is not an association with the people of God. He's talking to people that are involved in church, the people that have come and that have turned and slid away. They've walked away. They've turned their back on Jesus. You see, there can be no forgiveness for those who intentionally turn away from Jesus. Now, Again, he gives the warnings of drifting. He gives the warnings of doubting. And he says there's a fearful expectation here in verse 27, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. He says if you turn, that you are destined for a devil's hell if you intentionally turn away from Jesus. But he does make the distinction here between those who wander off course between those who wander off course, remember Hebrews chapter 5, verse 2, he says, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. So he's making the distinction between those who wander off course and those who radically rebel against the word of God. Let me ask you a question. When is the last time that you read the word of God and you were confronted with the reality of your sin and you turned from it. When's the last time you repented of a sin that was revealed to you through the reading of Scripture? Radically rebelling against the Word of God means that we're establishing our own boundaries and we're setting our own rules and following those. You see, this is someone who agrees intellectually. Verse 26, he said, they receive the knowledge of truth, but their heart has not been transformed. Now, we know, you know, he's talking about people that have turned from the gospel. 
I, I personally have invited people to this church, this church, as well as others. I've personally invited people to this church. There have been people who've made decisions to commit to follow Jesus that I've invited to this church who have turned and walked away and I haven't seen in a long time. You may know the same thing. He's talking about people who were involved in church who intentionally turned from God and they walked away. They intellectually knew the truth. They received the truth, but their heart was not transformed. And so he's saying that these people who go on and sin willfully, it doesn't mean that you and I won't sin, but he's speaking of the unpardonable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, of those who reject the Holy Spirit. Now, it's important here as we talk about not simply sinning, but turning against God, that we differentiate between apostasy and falling back into sin. Now, I'm, I'm not, I don't want you to misunderstand me tonight. I'm certainly not saying that there is perfection, salvation. Uh, you absolutely, you, me, and every other human that breathes air, when you get saved, you are forgiven of your sins and you are free from the penalty of sin, but you and I, unfortunately, are not free from the presence of sin. And that's why sanctification begins, uh, God begins to work in our heart through the infusion of the Holy Spirit to grow us in godliness to where He wants us to be, right? And so I'm not saying that you would be perfect. That is not what I'm saying. That would be amazing if it were true, but it's not. But what I am saying is that there's a difference in turning away from the faith and falling into sin. You see, the apostle describes uh, sinners not those who fall into any kind of sin, but those who forsake the church and separate themselves from Christ. There is a great difference between individual lapses and universal desertion of the kind which makes for a total falling away from the grace of Christ. You see, as we're thinking about sin tonight, you say, well, you know, Pastor, I've sinned before, I've lied before, I've... I've, I've certainly made mistakes. Well, most sin, of course, is deliberate. But the writer here is influenced by the Old Testament's teaching about sins of presumption, which lay outside the sacrificial provisions of the law. In Numbers chapter 15 and verse 29, this is what the Bible says. It says, you shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person, verse 30, who does anything with a high hand or intentionally, whether he is native or sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people, because he has despised the word of the Lord, and he has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. Now, let's tie some of this together. Why is it that, amongst many other reasons, that Jesus is infinitely better? Well, think about who heard these words. Think about this. So here's the person who all their life they grew up, and every year they had to take an animal to sacrifice to pay for their sins. Now, but it did not cover the sins of presumption, the sins that they did intentionally, right? So remember the guilt that they, we've talked about this a few weeks ago, the guilt that they would feel, and there was never a cleansing of their conscience because they were never sure if they were for sure cleansed. Why was that? Because they had to take their sacrifice to a human priest who had to make atonement for his own sins sins by a sacrifice before he made atonement for their sins. And so there was always this human element that was always present. But when Jesus came, 
The Bible says that Jesus removed the guilt of our conscience because he sacrificed once for all for us, right? That'd be a great place to say amen. And so because of what Jesus did, now we have access to the throne of God. And because of that, the Bible says that he covers all of our sins, past, present, and future. Now, what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's looking back to the old sacrificial system. And he's saying, listen, when you deliberately sinned against God, those sins were not covered. So why would you think that deliberate sins today against not Moses' law, but the Son of God, why would you think that those would be okay or covered? You see, under the old sacrifice, there were, uh, under the old covenant, rather, there were no sacrifices for deliberate, deliberate and willful sins. Imagine the guilt. And so what the writer is describing here is a graceless, reprobate state characterized by two things, deliberateness and continuance. Now you say, you know, again, pastor, we're the Sunday night crowd, and I mean, I know I sin, but I'm not turning my back on Jesus. Well, remember, it's, we've been warned already about drifting and doubting. And so what we do when we allow sin to continue in our life is we begin to compartmentalize that. We begin to write our own standards. We begin to write our own rules. And if we're deliberate with that sin, if we know that it is sin, but yet we continue to do it, How's that any different? You see, these people represent a continuity of a sinful lifestyle between the time before hearing the gospel and after. So here's how you know. What's the difference? Well, the difference is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away, all things become new, right? And so there's a difference between when you were lost. When you met Jesus and when you got, when you lived for Jesus, right? In that, if you've been through evangelism training, life before Jesus, how you met Jesus, life after Jesus. That's your testimony. It's what God did in your life. If your life before you met Jesus and your life after you met Jesus is the same, you didn't meet Jesus. Simple as that. And so he's saying here, if you deliberately continue in sin and your life is known by that, if your life is the same before as it is after, there was no meeting of the Son of God in your life. Because you can't come to Jesus and, be, and be, have this encounter and obtain salvation and yet be the exact same. And here's the proof, the rich young ruler. He came to Jesus and he says, hey, Jesus, guess what? I, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, you've got to do all of these things. And what did he say? He didn't say that's hard. He didn't say I'm not sure if I can do that. He didn't say is there another way. He said all of those things I've done from my youth. In other words, I've been in church. I've been studying the law. I know exactly what you're talking about, and I'm pretty good at doing it. And Jesus said, well, sell everything you got and give to the poor and come follow me. And he said, that's too much. That's too high a price. So what does the Bible say that he did? The Bible said that he turned and walked away. He turned and walked away. The same as the way he came was the same way that he left after his encounter with Jesus. You can have an encounter with God. Listen to me. You can be convicted of the Holy Spirit of your sin, and you cannot respond to that, and you can walk away the same as which you came. 
There's many people that are convicted of sin that don't respond to the Spirit of God and they leave the exact way that they came. As I told the Wednesday night crowd, I'm not sure who this is for. It certainly was instructive for my heart as I was preparing it. But this is what the Word of God says. And it's a hard word that we have to, we have to deal with. And we can't be okay. We are supposed to be different. God has called us to be holy. He has called us to be separate. We cannot be okay with continual sin in our life. You see, this individual has received the knowledge of the truth, the content of Christianity. They believe, their belief system, if you will, adheres to what we believe as followers of Jesus. This person knows what God has done in Christ. They they are aware of it. What does James 2.19 say? That the demons in hell believe and yet tremble. They're aware of what Jesus did as well. But he, this person intentionally, knowingly rejects it and willfully continues on in an unremitting state of sin. You see, unfortunately, hell is full of a lot of people who have a clear understanding of the gospel, but they never bowed the knee to Jesus as king. Knowing about God is completely different than following Jesus. You see, it it involves lordship. You see, when we talk about this, I mentioned church people. This is church people. This is not someone who's reprobate in the world, who never had any association with the church and never tried to. This is not who he's talking to. You see, the ignorant cannot commit this sin. They don't know. They haven't received the knowledge of truth. And so this is not someone who is, uh, you know, in a third world country who's never heard the gospel. This is not someone who was raised in an, an agnostic home, someone who was raised unchurched. This is not. This is for someone who knows what the Bible says. This is also not a sin that can be committed inadvertently. This is not, oops, I messed up. I shouldn't have done that. No, this is something that you know what it is, and yet you do it. You know it. You know it's wrong, and yet you continue in the sin. You see, it is a sin that only church people can commit. To such, no sacrifice for sins is left because they've rejected the one and only valid sacrifice, Jesus. Think about it. If you come to church and you hear the gospel... Okay, you hear the gospel and you recognize the Bible says in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. And you say, I agree with that, but yet you don't bow to it, you don't submit to it, and you turn and walk away from that. Why is there no other sacrifice available? Because there's no other sacrifice available, right? No other person, there's no other belief system to which their God or their leader has come down and said, listen, you're incapable of achieving the standard which is required. And so what I'll do on your behalf is I'll step in and I'll make that payment for you. There's no other belief system that has that belief. There's not one. Jesus is the only one, Christianity, to which our God says, listen, you're incapable of being perfect, and it requires a perfect sacrifice for you to reside in heaven, to have a relationship with holy God. And I know you can't do that, and so in mercy, I'm not going to give you what you deserve, right? 
And so I'm going to give you grace, and I'm going to give you what you don't deserve, and that is salvation, because I'm going to obtain that for you. We're the only, Jesus is the only belief system that does that. And if you do not believe that, if you don't receive that, if you say, okay, that's true, Jesus is the Son of God, historically it can be proven that Jesus existed, his bones have never been found, his tomb is empty, I believe all of that, but yet I'm not going to receive that as a sacrifice for my sins, I'm not going to submit to God, I'm going to continue in my own sins, there's nowhere else that you can go. When Jesus asked the disciples, when everybody was turning and walking away, he says, you guys going to leave too? And what did Peter say? To where else will we go? You're the one who has the words of eternal life. And so for the, for the person who knows that Jesus is the only way and yet turns from that, the writer of Hebrews just very clearly states, well, there's nothing left. You see, if the sacrifice of Christ should be renounced, there remains no other available sacrifice which could shield an apostate from God's judgment by a raging fire. And so he reminds them that those who are under the old covenant, those who sinned against the law of God were put to death, which he says is a lesser penalty. He says, you know, if you violated the law of God, you were put to death. And so what he's trying to do here is he's trying to encourage, but he's also warning. Next week we'll get to the encouraging part. But he's warning here in Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. He's saying, listen, do not allow sin to take root in your life to which you continue and deliberately participate in it. And so what this ought to do for us tonight is this ought to drive us to faithfulness and holiness. That we ought to push back. We ought to push back against sin. I mean, the Bible says that the enemy is prowling around, seeking whom he may devour. And we know that the end result of those uh, who give in uh, to the enemy, to the devil, that give in to sin, the Bible says that he comes to, to kill, steal, and to destroy. And you, you, can, you and I both can give thousands of examples of lives that have been destroyed by sin, right? We can all do that. We know that that's the enemy's desire is to trip us up and to mess us up and to lead us astray and to trick us and to deceive us. That's his game. And he's done it for thousands of years because he is bent on messing you up and trying to do anything he can to derail you in your walk with Jesus. And so it ought to drive us to press into Jesus, to acknowledge and recognize that on our own we are defenseless and we have no ability to reject the enemy apart from Christ. So how do we know tonight that this is an unsaved person? How do we know that he's talking about somebody who's lost, somebody who is not bent in lordship to Jesus? How is it possible to continue in habitual sin? How is it possible to continue in habitual sin? How can you and I how could, not you and I, how could a person continue in habitual sin and God be okay with it? I mean, do we know people like that? Right? Maybe. Probably. Someone who is known as a lifestyle of sin. How is it possible? Well, is it possible that the reason there's been no reckoning for sin has to do with the fact that people are not serving God but a version 
that they've created for themselves to follow? You say, well, I mean, this is a conversation you're only having in your mind, but you say, well, now, there, there are some sins in my life that I've really continued to be a part of, and I know that they're wrong, and I keep doing it, but God, God hasn't done anything about it. Those are conversations people have sometimes in their mind. So how is it possible to continue in habitual sin and God not do anything about it? Well, I was uh, counseling some children earlier this week, and uh, I've known the family for a while. And so uh, I asked the children, I said, uh, have you ever been to my house before? Yes. Have I ever been to your house before? Yes. Have I ever grounded you? No. Have I ever sent you to your room? No. Why do you think I've never done that? I don't know. Is it possible that the reason that I've never grounded you is because you're not my child? Is it possible that I've seen you make mistakes, I've seen you be disrespectful or do whatever, but I didn't reprimand you or I didn't get on to you or I didn't punish you or I didn't straighten you up because why? Because you're not my child. Is it it possible that there's been no reckoning for sin because the God that that person is serving is a version that they've created? I mean, this is what the Bible says in Hebrews 12, 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. So God corrects, God chastises those who continue, who, who sin and, and are, you know, sliding down that slope, and God corrects them, and He re- refocuses their path. That's what the Bible says. He disciplines the one that He loves, and He chastises every son He receives. Is it possible that if this is you, and you're having that conversation, and you say, well, there is sin in my life, and I do know it's sin, and I have continued in it, but there's been no reckoning of, of God doing something about it. Well, is it possible that you are not a child of God. You see, he mentions the terror of there being no sacrifice, and then he says that there's judgment that will follow. He says only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. This is an echo of the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 11, which says, let the fire reserved for your enemies consume them. And certainly they knew that this was an expression for judgment. So why does, we talk about sin, we talk about deliberate sin, we talk about continuing in sin and the danger of doing that. And so why is it that continuing to live in sin will lead to apostasy? Or in other words, why, why is it that continuing to live in sin will lead to defecting from the faith, turning your back on Jesus and walking away? How is that possible? Well, I think it's here's why. Here's how it's possible, and here's why it's important. You see, to continually live in sin devalues Jesus. When you and I continually live in sin, when we deliberately sin in our lives, what we do is we devalue Jesus. This is a rejection of the identity of Christ. You see, Jesus said in John chapter 14 that he and the Father were one, Right? And Jesus says that no man comes to the Father but through me. And so when we continually live in sin, what we're saying is that Jesus is not enough. 
That the work, the sacrifice, listen, God, I I know you sent your only son. I know he paid the highest price possible by shedding his blood for my sins, that he died on the cross in my place. I understand that he did that. I know that that's what Jesus' purpose was, that Jesus died for me. I understand all of that. And God, I'm grateful for it, but I'm still going to continue to live in sin because my desires are greater than the sacrifice for which you paid. It's devaluing Jesus when we continue to live in sin. Because what we're saying is instead of choosing to live for Christ, we are choosing to live for the world, for the enemy, for the devil. It devalues Jesus. That we allow sin to continue to be present in our lives. Number two, when we continue to live in sin, we devalue not only Jesus, but we devalue the work of Jesus. When we devalue the work of Jesus, what we've done is we've made the work of Jesus common. I mean, that's what the world has done today, right? That's what the world has said is, well, you know, a, you know, a couple years ago, maybe five or ten years ago, Oprah famously said, well, you know, she had some people on her show and she said, you can't be so narrow-minded as to believe that Jesus is the only way. Well, yes, I can be that way because I didn't write John 14, 6. Jesus spoke it himself with his own words, and John penned it about 50 years later. So, no, I'm not the standard Oprah, and I'm not the one who said it. Jesus is. So if you have a problem with Jesus being the only way, you should probably talk to Jesus about it, right? But when we continue to live in sin, we're making the work of Jesus common, and we're saying that such a high price was paid for salvation to be obtained for sinful humanity, but, and anytime there's a but that follows that comment, you're headed the wrong way. But I understand it was a great sacrifice, but there is this other way that I like to follow, and I know it doesn't really lead me anywhere good, but I just like it. Isn't that what the Bible says, sin is fun, but for a season? Right? Isn't that what the Bible says? And so we devalue the work of Christ when we continue to dabble and play and deliberately participate in sin. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 2, 17, Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. What is that talking about? Well, Eli was the priest, and he had some sons that were you know, coming up in the priesthood. And they were treating the priesthood as their personal satisfaction factory. And God was not okay with that. Why was that? Why was God not okay with that? Well, because the Bible says they treated the offering of the Lord, the sacrifices that the priest was responsible for, with contempt. And so they were saying, well, it's it's not special, it's not sacred, it's just normal. I'm going to continue in sin, I'm going to disobey and still try to perform my duties of the priesthood because it's not really that special, this whole sacrificial thing. They had made the work of Christ, the sacrifice, come, and they devalued Jesus. And number three, to continue in sin rejects the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to think about this. When, you, when a person continues in sin, what they are saying, this is what the Bible says, John 16, 8, when he comes, he will convict, he being the Holy Spirit, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so when, when the Holy Spirit convicts a person of their sin and they reject that, 
They are saying that the the standards by which God abides by, the standards by which God set, that the Holy Spirit relays to us, we are rejecting those because we have set ourselves on, therefore I tell you every lives. Matthew chapter 12 says this in verse 31, Therefore I tell you every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Why is that? Because of what I read in John chapter 16. When He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. How did you come to know Jesus? How did I come to know Jesus? Well, let me tell you how I came to know Jesus. I was sitting about four or five pews back on the left-hand side, and the conviction of God wrapped me up like an envelope. And I remember the conviction in my life of all of the sin that I had committed. And I remember thinking to myself, for the first time in my life, I understood what Nicodemus felt. When Nicodemus said, we perceive that you're a great prophet, and Jesus looked directly at Nicodemus and said, you must be born again. It was an individual, personal encounter with Jesus. And for the first time in my life, I understood that sin had separated me from a holy God. The conviction that came on my life, I had a choice. I could respond in lordship to that conviction and confess that I was wrong and that Jesus was right and that Jesus was the only way to heaven and that I would surrender my life to him. Or I could continue in my sin and in doing so it would be a rejection of the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God. You see, if you continue in sin, if you turn from Jesus, you're rejecting the conviction of the Spirit of God and hence you have become your own God. So what does it look like? The, the, the writer here at the latter part of the verse, he says that you would fall into the hands of the living God. What does that look like? What does it look like to fall into the hands of the living God? You see, I think a lot of times we presume on the kindness of God. And as humanity, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus has been here. Now, remember the Bible says the day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And so according to what the Bible says, Jesus has been gone for two days. But we presume, well, it's been a couple thousand years. He's been gone for a while. And so I know we have the Bible, but what does the Bible say it looks like for someone to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, Revelation 6.12 says this. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. And the sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals of the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, saying, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand. What does it look like to fall into the hands of the living God? Well, that's what it looks like. It's not something that you want. 
So what should a believer do who has drifted away into sin, who's, who is slowly fading, that's drifting away? Well, if that's you, you should turn to God for mercy and forgiveness. You see, there's no other sacrifice but the sacrifice of Jesus. And the sacrifice of Jesus was certainly sufficient for all of our sins. It's most definitely a fearful thing to fall into the Lord's hands for chastisement, but it is a wonderful thing to fall into God's hands for cleansing and restoration. You see, David said in 1 Chronicles, Let me now fall into the hand of the Lord, for very great are His mercies. And so if the Spirit of God is convicting you of whatever sin may be present in your life, like Isaiah chapter 55 says, we ought to seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Because that may not always be the case. You see, remember last week when Pastor Tony preached and he says that, Simon, you, you could seek repentance and if possible receive forgiveness of your sins. You see, we can't look to God and expect that we can do whatever we want. And because He's a God of love and mercy, that when we decide to come to Him and receive His forgiveness, that all of a sudden He's just going to give it to us. That's not how that works. We don't come to God on our terms. We come to God on whose terms? On His terms. And the Bible says, seek Him while He may be found. And so if the conviction of God is falling upon your heart and God is calling you to, be, to repent, well, then that's what you ought to do, not in delaying and say, well, no, I'll wait until next week or I'll wait until tomorrow. Because we'll be reminded in just a few weeks that in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 17, for you know that afterwards when Esau, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So we can't presume upon the tarrying of the Lord. So how as believers tonight can we guard against this? How can we guard against falling into sin? Continually falling into deliberate sin. Well, there's two things. How do we guard against it? Well, we continually be exposed before the Word of God to guide our thoughts and our actions. Now, I want you to think about how I worded this. Continually be exposed. That we don't go to the Word of God with presuppositions or uh, you know, preconceived ideas of what we think it's going to say or what we want it to say, but that we go to the Word of God exposed before the Word of God and saying, God, I want you to guide my thoughts and my actions. That in and of myself, left to my own device, I'm going to do the sinful thing. I'm going to do the wrong thing because the Bible teaches us that our heart is deceitfully wicked and that left our own, we're going to do the wrong thing. But if we continually sit before the Word of God, exposing ourselves and everything that we know about ourselves and saying, God, you know me. God, you know everything about me. And God, you know all the bad parts about me. And God, I'm giving those to you. I'm exposing those to you that in and of myself, I am incapable of overcoming this sin that so, the, according to the Bible, so easily entangles us. And I'm exposing myself to you, leaning into the sovereignty of God and believing that the Lordship of Jesus will bring me through. That's what the Bible teaches. And so if we continue to expose ourselves to the Word of God, righteousness in, righteousness out. And number two, intentionally measure our actions as self-serving or God-honoring. When you have 
a thought that comes before you. You have an opportunity to sin. Ask yourself the question, will this serve me or will it honor God? And that will help you to decide whether or not you should continue. Remember, it's not a sin to be tempted. The sin comes when we act on that temptation. So I hope this has been as encouraging for you as it was for me. As the writer of Hebrews is warning and encouraging us here that sin is crouching at the door. And that we need to press in. That we need to run as fast away from sin as possible. And we need to lean in as close as possible to Jesus. For without Him we are nothing. And were it not for Him, we would be destined for a devil's hell. So I hope you leave encouraged tonight knowing that Jesus loves you and that His intention for you on the latter part of John chapter 10, verse 10, is that Jesus came, that we may have life and have it more abundantly. And that is living the life that Jesus called you to live. Amen?